Uh, super glad to have you here. Um, we're still kind of in low key mode, which is why I'm using this microphone tonight. Usually I rock my Britney Spears kind of over ear uh, version, uh, but you know, we're doing things and moving things around and sometimes stuff gets forgotten. It's not a big deal. Sometimes the wrong song gets get put in the bulletin. Sometimes you don't bring the mic. Uh, it's just life, and we go on. I actually, uh, I preached at another church this morning in Bremerton, so drove out to Bremerton this morning, uh, did two services, and, uh, and then came back, and uh, I told them, I got on stage because I was the guest speaker, they all, they all clapped for me. I'm like, I like this, you know. <laughs> This is, I got to do this more often. I don't, nobody claps for me at my church. So, uh, so I, um, man, I really thought you guys would clap when I said that. Um, no, it, it feels gross now. It's, it's not, it's not okay. Uh, so we are in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 3 tonight. We've been going through 1 Corinthians for these first couple weeks. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians uh, until September. So we've got a long ways to go. Uh, and the, the title of this series has been The Gospel-Formed Church. And so uh, looking at each of these different ideas and things that were coming up in the Church of Corinth through the lens of the gospel, um, as Paul did. And uh, so I, I mentioned last week that we were going to be talking about work this week. And I, I don't know if that's uh, a topic that you've heard a lot of sermons about. I know for me, like I grew up in the church, I didn't hear a lot of sermons about work. Uh, and, and when I did, they were not typically, this was, as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, I, I didn't hear a lot about work itself. I, I heard like what work was for, or like what, what the good of it, what the purpose of it was, and uh, it was almost never about the work itself. So um, I was starting, I made like a list of things that I remembered hearing work was for, and so I, I started kind of brainstorming it this week, and the, I would say the number one thing that I heard growing up was that work was a platform for evangelism. Right, like you, you get to go, and the pastor would tell us this. You get to go out into the world, out into the darkness, and uh, and be a light to the darkness. And it's an opportunity for you to be around people who are not Christian and share the gospel with them. Right, and and so maybe you heard that a lot. I know I did, and uh, so that was probably the biggest one. I, but another one that was kind of similar, but a, a little bit different take on it was that uh, the that our time at work was, uh, you know, even when we couldn't proclaim the gospel, because sometimes we work in a place where you just can't, you know, talk about Jesus or whatever, that we could demonstrate the gospel, right? We could work in such a way that our non-Christian co-worker could, would at some point say to us, what is this hope that you have within you, right? Like that was the goal that at some point our non-Christian coworker starts quoting scripture to us, right? Like, I, I don't know how that would work, but like as if in, we're in our cubicle and our coworker next to us turns and says, hey, can I borrow your stapler? And we go, yes, you can. And they're like, whoa what is this hope, right? Uh, so that we would do things in such a way that would, you know, cause them to ask us questions, right? So um, a, a lot of that is what I heard about work. Or if you, uh, you know, maybe you ran your own business or you were a boss. And so uh, maybe the conversation was about ethics and how to run a business ethically, how to treat your employees well, how to treat uh, the other, you know, the contractors that you work with well, and just to, to how to do things ethically, Right? Or maybe it was about providing for your family, 
that we work in order to make money so that we can provide for our family. Or maybe we work so that we can make money so that we can tithe, right? Maybe that's what you heard. That one's actually true. Some of us uh, were told that our, our work was just kind of a day job so that we could be freed up to volunteer at the church, right? Some of us who were blessed to have a job that um, really aligned with our desires and our uh, passions, that um, our work became our purpose, right? And then uh, for some of us, and this is where things can go a little bit sideways, uh, our work can become our identity, Right, so um, I am an engineer, or I am a software designer, or I am a computer programmer, or I am a barista, or whatever, right? Like, you're more than that, barista. So much more. Um, but th there's a sense in which, like, we can take on that identity, and, uh, and that is kind of how work can go sideways. So we hear about all these ways that, w you know, it's a, a work can be a positive op opportunity for us, and then we hear um, the negative of, like, when it becomes our identity, when it can go sideways for us. So um, I, I mentioned at the beginning that we use this phrase all the time, the king, the kingdom, and the common good, right? That we love the king, that we seek the kingdom, and we serve the common good. And one of the things that I almost never heard growing up was the way in which my work could serve the common good. Like how the, the things that I could do, and this was, you know, before I went into ministry, but like as I envisioned my life, which was basically as a professional baseball player, I just thought, well, this is how I'll serve the world, um, that, that it can, I could actually contribute in a meaningful way towards the common good, that I could build the kingdom of God in some way right? That was, that was never really part of the conversation. And so um, what I want to do tonight in this little passage, um, I mentioned last week that Paul kind of takes this little aside in verses 10 through 15, and he zooms in on his work. Now, if you remember, this larger section has been about Paul kind of challenging the Corinthians uh, to not be divisive around, you know, who they followed, whatever, in chapter 1, uh, verse 12, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, right? That they had they'd taken these relationships, and some of them were cultural, some of them were preferences, they'd taken these relationships and gone, okay, I'm with this guy, and, and in some way that brings me value. And so Paul had been kind of railing against that idea in the passage we looked at just last week in verse 5 of chapter 3. He said, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed, right? So Paul is establishing like, listen, our, our role is in no way to be idolized. We're just here serving God in our way. So in verses 10 through 15, he kind of deep dives a little bit on his work. And, and on what he's been doing with the Corinthians and what he's been doing um, largely. And, and even though this section is absolutely about Paul's work, and Paul's work is ministry very specifically, um, he was also a tent maker. And I think if we zoom out, and what I want to do is kind of a biblical theology of work a little bit, to, to kind of frame this little passage in a larger understanding of what we believe about the gospel, and so that we might work in a gospel-formed kind of way. So um, I, I, I want to preach uh, basically all of Genesis to Revelation, so we, we need to get going. So turn to Genesis 1 if you can. Real quick, I want to establish 
kind of a framework. So Genesis 1, if you're using a Bible, it should be uh, page 1. Genesis 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is one of those funny things in the Bible to me, that um, the writer of Genesis starts to write this list, right? So he goes, the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth. And I think at some point he realized, gosh, if I list all the things, it's going to be a really long list. And so he just goes, and all the creeping things that creep on the earth, right? Just to kind of sum it all up. I find that stuff funny. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is what theologians call the cultural mandate. Right? This is the first command that God gives to mankind. And I, I want us to notice a couple things about it. First, it's interesting to me that the very first command that God gives to mankind isn't moral in any way. Right? Like he doesn't tell them how to do something. He doesn't give them some sort of ethical or moral advice. That's not the first commandment. It's not, it's not thou shalt obey me, right? That you'd think that might be the first thing out of his mouth, but it's not. The first command that God gives Adam and Eve is a mission. He gives them a, a mission, a purpose, a, a job, essentially, right? So for all of us who think or feel sometimes that work is, must be a product of the fall, um, we see here in Genesis 1, no, it has been from the beginning. In fact, it is the very first commandment we've been given, right? So what's the job? Verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, right? Yes and amen. I have five kids, just obedient. It says, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Okay? So he, he, this is kind of an amazing thing. And so I, we, we can't miss this, right? So Adam um, and Eve are given all of God's creation, all the kind of raw material of God's creation that has yet to be cultivated in any way. Right? And he tells them, you have dominion over all of it. You have to subdue it first because it's wild. It's just, it's just raw land, raw creation. But he says, you, you, you have dominion over it. And this word dominion is kind of pregnant with meaning. And, and it means, a, a, a nice way to think about it is to care for, cultivate, and create. To care for, cultivate, and create. So um, we, as uh, in the lineage of, of man, our, our job is to care for God's creation, to cultivate it, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and then to kind of co-create with God. So this idea of cultivation is really interesting to me, and it, it coincides with, this, with our larger idea of work. That essentially God told Adam and Eve, take the raw materials of this world and make something of it. Right? And this is, this is the beginning of the gospel story. And so essentially he says, okay, take, take these raw materials. Take thing one and take thing two. Don't, I've got Dr. Seuss running in my head because I have young children. But take thing one and thing two um, and put them together in such a way that creates thing three. And thing three has never existed before. 
right? This is, this is the act of cultivation and co-creation, that they have the opportunity to put things together in such a way that makes a third thing that's never been a thing before. That was their job. From the very beginning, the very first commandment was to be creative and cultivate the raw materials of this world, right? So we follow the rest of the gospel story, which we kind of sum up here at Icon as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, right? So um, shortly after God gives this uh, cultural mandate and this, this command to them, we see like one page later, it, it, it goes sideways, Right? And Adam and Eve are in rebellion and sinners, the world and brokenness and all these things. And then we've got this long story of the implications of sin, the implications of rebellion being played out while God continually seeks after his people. Okay? And all of that kind of climaxes at Jesus in the Gospels where we see this third movement, this third chapter of the Gospel, the redemptive movement. And then as Jesus lives a perfect life and dies on the cross and is raised on the third day, we see a promise of restoration. But it's important for us to, to pay attention to the language that's used here in the scriptures, right? Because I think if you're like me, and I grew up in kind of modern evangelicalism, like great experience with church, but I, I think I would have told the story as creation, fall, redemption, Jesus blows it up and starts over. Right? That there's this, there's this burning up of everything, and then we get to start afresh in heaven. But see, that's, that's not the story, is it? The story is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. In fact, there's all these words used over and over and over in the scriptures, and they all start with R-E, which means to do again. So we have renew and restore and redeem and reconcile. So we're, we're making things new again. In fact, in Revelation 22, so if we go from Genesis 1 all the way to the end in Revelation 22, God says, behold, I am making all things new, which is really different than if he had said, behold, I am making all new things. Right? So we, we have this kind of cyclical nature to the gospel that God is the kind of God who when he makes something and sets about a purpose, he is not easily thwarted in his purposes. So when God creates and creates perfectly and, and kind of sets life in motion, there is no amount of sin in us or evil in Satan that can undo ultimately God's purposes in creation. So when we tell the story, we go, yeah, it's creation, it's fall, it's redemption. And what happened on the cross and in the resurrection was the beginnings of the kingdom of God being returned to its rightful place of full sovereignty over the world. And we have hope that one day it will be fully restored, but not in some new way that we won't recognize, but a restored version of what he created in the first place. So here's what that means for us this evening. The cultural mandate that we're given in Genesis 1 to care for, cultivate, and create is still our commandment today. 
That's still the, the work of our hands. That's still what God has put before us today, that we would take thing one and thing two, and today that might be digital thing one and thing two, and create digital thing three, but we still are taking the raw materials of God's world and making new things with them. That that's been our job from the very first day. So now turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's read this passage together with that in mind. Paul says in verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives... He will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So verse 14 is, is the key piece in this. So I want to read that again. It says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So if you're familiar with Paul, familiar with his writing, you know that the day that he talks about, it's capitalized probably in your Bible, the day is this last final day of judgment. And so what Paul is saying here is that there is a kind of work that we can do that will, at the day of judgment, be kind of uh, burned in fire metaphorically, and that if what we have built is the equivalent of wood, hay, and straw, it will be burned up. But if what we have built is the equivalent of gold, silver, and precious jewels, the impurities will be burned out, and it will survive, and it will survive into eternity. So let me say this really plainly. There is work that we can do now that will survive into eternity. There is real work. There is things we can accomplish here in our day-to-day lives that will not simply be represented here on this planet and and in in this age, but after judgment, God will look upon what we have done and go, yes, this is beautiful. This is exactly what I have put you on the earth to do. And yes, there's bound to be impurity in it because we can never create a perfect thing Though bacon is close. Um, but there, but So naturally something will be burned out of it, but it could survive in Paul's word, using Paul's word, survive into eternity. So the question is what? What kind of work might survive into eternity? Because I think that's a pretty good goal. For all the time we spend working, and for most of us, it's the activity we give most of our lives to. There is no single uh, conscious activity, and some of you work more than you sleep, so there's probably no single activity that you devote more of your life to than your work. So to not have a really clear sense of purpose around it seems like a waste. So I see in this passage four principles that Paul gives us for good work. 
Number one, in verse 10, Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me. Stop there. According to the grace of God given to me. Paul's assumption, before he ever gets into this, Paul's assumption is that everything he has has come from God. Everything, every opportunity that he has to work and to live and to do what he does, all of that comes from God. That's Paul's presupposition, right? That, that our, our brains and our activity and all of our talents and all of our abilities, all of that has come from God. That is Paul's presumption. In fact, Abraham Kuyper, who uh, is an old Dutch uh, theologian, says this very famously. He says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say mine. That there is nothing that escapes. Nothing outside the realm of Christ's lordship. Tim Keller, famous pastor in New York City, says it this way, if you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, all your resources are, in the end, the gift of God. Now you're saying to yourself, but I've worked hard. I've worked hard. Don't take that away from me. I've earned what I have. I I have worked my tail off. I have sacrificed. I have put my nose to the grindstone. And I I see people who don't do that. And so don't tell me that everything I have is from God. I have worked hard for it. And, And yeah, of course. There's no question you have worked many hours. There's no question you've given yourself fully and completely to your work. There's no question that you worked hard. You've ground your fingers to the bone. You've used your legs and your arms and your brain in ways that are remarkable. And, And of course, you grew those arms and legs yourself. And, and, of course, developed the brain, chose that brain to have. And, and I remember when you were just a little, little wee toddler walking around saying, I will have the work ethic of a bricklayer. And you chose that for yourself, of course. And, of course, you chose your parents who provided for you. Of course, you chose the century upon which you would be born. Of course, you chose the country. Of course, you chose the time. Of course, of course, all of it. Of course, all of that is under your control. And it's not. In fact, very few of the things that are meaningfully part of our story were our choice at all. So, sure, you've worked hard. I don't doubt that. Sure, you've applied those abilities and those talents, but so have others. And there's not a person in this room who couldn't look back on their life and and talk about the opportunities that they were afforded that other people weren't. Talk about people who they knew who were just as smart and just as hardworking who didn't attain the same levels of success that you did. If we were honest with ourselves. So for Paul, this this has to be the foundation. That um, in, in order for us to ever do the kind of work that could one day survive the day, we have to start with this presupposition that it, it all came from him. Because that 
puts us in a posture of thankfulness and humility. Because if for a moment we think that it's us and it's our doing and we are primarily to be thanked for it or primarily to get the praise for it, we will never do the kind of work that will survive the day. So that's one. Number two. He says, like a skilled master builder, and stop there. I, again, grew up in the church, and um, there are at times um, where we uh, elevate certain values over others. And so um, we elevate values like, uh, you know, being nice, and we elevate uh, values like evangelism. We elevate values like inclusion. And so we, uh, at times, maybe you've been in a church service where somebody got to perform or got to do something that really they have no business being able to do in public, right? No one should have handed that person a microphone. Aunt Sally just can't sing, right? Um, But in church, at times, people are given microphones. You might be thinking that now, actually. Um, But we have uh, other values sometimes, and sometimes excellence um, doesn't rise to the top of our value structure. Not so for Paul. He says here, like a skilled master builder, and those words would have had real meaning for the Corinthians where um, they existed in a culture that had a guild system, and someone would not be called a skilled master builder unless they had spent years, and in many cases, decades as an apprentice doing one thing, learning from a master, and then at some point later in life be bestowed that title of skilled master master builder. Paul says, listen, I I have honed my skills. I have worked hard to be able to do what I do well. Like a skilled master builder, I have given myself to my task. This is one of those, this is one of those things that um, I, I would say in Seattle, we probably don't struggle with as much. We have a, a pretty high, uh, high bar for the experiences we have here in Seattle. And so let me just say this. Um, this, this principle on its own of being a skilled master builder um, would, not, would not work without the first. Without the presupposition that everything we have is grace. This idea of being a skilled master builder quickly just becomes about us and our reputation. It quickly becomes about us and attaining the next thing. The only way that this can actually produce the kind of work that might survive the day is if we first have the presupposition that everything we have is from God. Therefore, we've simply been entrusted with something from the king. And if we have been given something from the king, we've been given dominion over all of his creation and been given the tools to cultivate it, then yes, we ought to give ourselves to excellence, not so that we can grow in stature in our own reputation, but because of what we're working with. We've been given Michelangelo's tools and the Sistine Chapel and said, get to work. We've been given this great opportunity to cultivate and create and care for God's world. And that comes with great responsibility, the kind of responsibility and the kind of authority that would hopefully push us towards excellence that we would want to get better and better and better at doing the thing 
God has given us to do. Number three. He says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Um, This one is hard for me. Paul is saying here, know your role. He said, Paul planted this church. Paul planted the church in Corinth. Apollos came along later, taught. The church grew and flourished under his leadership. And uh, before, earlier in the chapter, he said, I planted, Apollos watered. We were all just doing our jobs. So Paul says, in order to, to kind of do this kind of work, we have to know our role. And that's hard for me. This is the third church that I've planted. And so I have people all the time say, oh, so you're, you're like a church planter guy, right? Like you just, you plant churches. And I, and I hate that and I resist it because I don't, I don't want them to tell me what I have to do. Maybe I want to do something else. Maybe I, maybe I look at other people and other opportunities and I go, I kind of want to do that. I don't want to be this guy. Don't box me in. You don't know me. Right? Don't box me in. I I may want to do other things. It's hard for me to not look at people in other areas, sometimes in ministry and sometimes just in y'all's real life, where I go, oh, that would be cool. I want to do that. But Paul here is saying you have to know your role. You have to know your lane. Um, In business, there is a, a, a common idea called the Peter Principle. You guys know what the Peter Principle is? that you are promoted to your level of incompetence, basically, right? So you are a salesperson, and you are good at it, and so you get promoted to lead salesperson, and then you're really good at it because you get to kind of teach all these guys, and then you get promoted to sales manager, and you figure out, oh, that's a totally different set of skills. I'm bad at that, right? And then you don't get promoted anymore because you're bad, and so you get promoted to your level of incompetence, right? And largely, this is a kind of business structuring uh, principle, but here's the thing. Um, Promotions take two to tango. It takes a boss saying, hey, I think you could do more. And it takes an employee to say, yes, I want more. And so you can't get promoted to your level of incompetence if you don't take the promotion. And so part of uh, the the Peter principle is, is just as much about organizational dysfunction as it is about human ego and hubris and greed. Um, I, I played sports a lot growing up, played baseball. I was pretty good at it. Played basketball, not that good at it. Um, but I had two buddies who were really good at basketball, and we, we played on a three-on-three basketball team. We'd play different tournaments and stuff, and we won. We were pretty good. Um, and we were good because I didn't touch the ball. That was kind of my job, to stay away from the ball. And so uh, I played defense. Uh, I wasn't allowed to shoot the ball. I wasn't really allowed to pass the ball, except when I caught, uh, got a rebound, and then I was able to quickly pass it to a shooter, as long as I did that very quickly. And, and dribbling off the table, right? So this, this was my role. I set screens, I defended the big guy, and I got rebounds whenever I could and passed them to shooters. This was my role. As long as I did my role, we won. The games where I scored, we lost. I have a basic basketball rule when I go to open gym or something. If I'm the best player on the court, this is a bad game. This, all, this is not worth playing, okay? Knowing our role allows us the freedom to just be who we are and be good at who we are. Again, 
this never happens unless we start with the presupposition that all we have is grace from God. Because the temptation is always there to be more, to do more, to be better, to to accept the promotion, to get the prestige, to get the reputation, to get the pay raise. There's always that temptation. And if we ignore the fact that everything is from him and is all grace and we think it actually is about us, then we have to take the promotion because it reflects back exactly on who we are. But if it's not, if it's not, if we are simply whatever God has given us and we are secure in that sense, secure in who we are in Christ, it allows us to stay in our lane, which also allows us over time to become the skilled master builders that Paul talks about. And we stay laser focused on the thing that he has given us to do. Does that mean you can't take a promotion? No, by all means. But when you do, when it's presented to you, that you would go, is this who I am? Is this what I should do? Is this who God has made me do? This, uh, does it include the skills and abilities that God has given me uniquely? So that's number three. Number four, Jesus Christ is the foundation. Verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're building on his land So we ought to build in line with his priorities. Build what and how he wants. Abraham Kuyper again says, um, wherever man may stand, whatever he may do, to whatever he may apply his hand in agriculture, in commerce, or in industry, or his mind in the world of art and science, he is, in whatsoever it may be, constantly standing before the face of his God. He is employed in the service of his God, and he is strictly to obey his God, and above all, he has to aim at the glory of his God. Now, if I'm honest, this, the phrase glory of God has always been kind of troublesome for me. In part because it's churchy and it just kind of gives me the willies. Um, and in part because it's vague. Like what, is that, what does that actually mean to give glory to God? We say it a lot. We use that phrase a lot. Pastors love the phrase. But what does it actually mean? And why is God seem to be so intent on his own glory. If God is perfectly humble as we might expect him to be, why is he always talking about getting glory and having his own glory given to him? And so I I was thinking about this a couple months ago, actually, preparing for a sermon. I was thinking about this idea of glory and breaking it down to go, okay, what what is glory? Glory is, um, is kind of revealing something for what it is. And the way in which you give something or somebody glory is by kind of shining a light to show what that thing or what that person is. I started to think, you know, if God is God, if God is this kind of perfect being that he is, and we know that God, um, God's kind of creative work was to create all things to be good and that God's redemptive work is always for us, that God is kind of wooing us and loving us and desiring relationship with us and that God is perfectly good. I realize this. 
I realized that the kinds of activities or the kinds of words, the kinds of things that actually glorify God are always going to be the kinds of things that are for the good of our neighbor. Because the kind of activity that reflects who God actually is, is always going to be good activity. It's always going to contribute to the good of my neighbor. Like, I can't do it. There's, there's two categories. There's the kind of behavior, the kind of words, the kind of actions that do glorify God. And that those things are in line with who God is and what God does. So literally, God is the only being in the universe that if we glorify him, is always 100% and without exception for the good, for the common good of our neighbors. Because that's, it, it's reflective of his character. And so when Paul says that he laid this foundation, this foundation is Christ, and that we're supposed to build on that foundation in a way that glorifies God, this is literally he's calling us to the kind of activity, the kind of work that is for the good of others. Now, here's what I know. Some of you are working jobs that contribute to the common good. You can draw a really straight line from the activities of your hands and mind to how it positively impacts your neighbor. Some of you would have to think about it a little bit, and maybe you got to draw kind of a crooked line, but you could get there as well, right? But there are some of you who are working jobs, and, and you couldn't figure out how to draw the line. And, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know what most of you all do. I, I, I don't know the places that you work. But some of you, I know, work in jobs where the environment of the company itself is actually not causing its employees to thrive, but it's kind of slowly killing them. I know that some of you probably work in, in industries that are creating things that are not making the users or the customers better, not causing them to flourish and thrive in their world, but are actually maybe promoting, at best, distraction, at worst, outright temptation. But there are others of you that are working in jobs where you go, I I can see how my work impacts the common good in a really clear way. And, and for you, um, the question is, do you begin with this place of everything I have, all of my contribution finds its kind of foundation in the grace of God? Am I working to be this skilled master builder that he has called me to? If I line these things up, because this last thing, I'm, I'm, I'm building on the foundation that Jesus laid. I'm working in line with what he would want the world to be like. When back in Genesis 1 where he came to Adam and said, listen, cultivate and create. Take thing one and thing two and make thing three for my glory and for the good of the rest of creation. That that has been and continues to be our job. So here's the thing. Some of you, I don't know who, some of you need to quit. Some of you want to quit, and that's a different thing, but some of you need to quit. And I don't know who, that's, that's your work to do. Some of you are studying to go into some field, and you need to ask yourself kind of this set of questions. Like, am I, am I working towards something that will actually contribute to the common good? 
my working towards something that will reflect the glory of God and cause flourishing in my neighborhood or my town or my county, my country, my world? These are questions we need to ask ourselves honestly. At which point does my work fail to meet this expectation that Paul has laid out? And that takes us back to verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If we work about 40 hours a week, and we work about 50 weeks a year, I'll give you a little vacation, and you work for about 50 years, that's 100,000 hours. My calculator told me so. 100,000 hours that you have been given. And there will be a day, the day, that will disclose what kind of work you have done that I have done. And so when Paul says there will be reward and there will, some will suffer loss, he's not talking about salvation. He's very clear about that. But that as you stand before God on that day, that you will give an account for those 100,000 hours and it will pass through some metaphorical fire and some of it will be burned up and some of it will be purified and have the potential to last into eternity. The question is, and again, I don't know what the reward and the loss would be, but it seems like even if it was just to see 100,000 hours of your life as a heap of ash, that would be a great loss. And if we got to see that some portion, at least of that 100,000 hours, was actually purified and passed into eternity, that would be a great reward. So this, this little aside from Paul is not meant to bring shame or guilt or, you know, cause us to blow up our lives and quit everything and, you know, everybody uh, start a nonprofit. It wouldn't work because we'd all be raising money from each other and it just, it just, it just wouldn't work. But it ought to, it ought to give us pause Because we have been given this incredible opportunity. God has handed us his world. And he has handed us each individually the ability and the skill and the opportunity to make something of his world. He's given us a lot of time to do something with it. So what stands before us is an opportunity. An opportunity that Jesus came and lived and died so that we could step into. Right? I mean, part of the gospel story, this redemptive story, is God remaking us into the women and men we were meant to be. That we could fully embody who we are, these image bearers of God, given this great task that we are up to. So this this redemptive discipleship work in our lives is meant to 
to make us into the people that we were meant to be, the kinds of people that could take thing one and thing two and make it into something that is thing three that would glorify God and contribute to the common good in a meaningful way. That's what's on offer to us. And my prayer is that we here at Icon would have a gospel-formed vision for work and we could tell story after story after story, not just of the great things that God has done inside these walls, but that what God has done inside these walls would pale in comparison to what God has done through you outside of them. That's my prayer and my hope for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are completely and totally dependent on you. Even when we don't know it, even when we don't acknowledge it, when we don't realize it. The irony is that most of the time when we don't realize our deep dependence is because of how well you have taken care of us. We're blinded to our need for you because we see only your provision in our lives. So God, we, uh, we come before you as stewards of your world, stewards of great gifts and abilities that you've given us, humbled by the fact that it has all been received by grace and God ready for the opportunity that you've set before us to have real impact on our world. So Lord, I pray what I just said, that what you do in here would be great, but that it would pale in comparison to what you do through us out there that we can in real ways contribute to the common good of Seattle and King County and beyond. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we do each and every week, we'll take a little bit of time to, um, to think and pray, to meditate on what we've heard tonight. We don't get a lot of time to do that, to stop in the midst and, and really think through uh, what what's what God is saying to us. We want to create that space now. So I'll come back here in just a couple minutes and lead us in communion. Um, but let's take these next few moments, bow our heads together and listen to the Lord.
at Icon, we take communion together each and every week because we need to be reminded each and every week. We need to be reminded that everything we have has been given to us by grace. And that this act of taking the bread and dipping it in the wine is just a, a visceral reminder of our need and our absolute dependence upon him. As we take the bread, which signifies his body, and the wine, which signifies his blood, we remember that our only hope is in him. So we want to do this every single week because there is not a week that goes by that we fully remember our dependence on him. So as we come, I encourage you to kind of form one line on the right side and circle back on the left. It keeps the flow nice. Um, Mike and Michelle are going to lead us in a couple more songs. Our offering box is in the back. Um, if you're here and you're new, especially if you're not a Christian, we don't want anything from you. We're just couldn't be more glad that you're here. You are always welcome to be here. Uh, giving is something that Christians do because we believe that everything we have has been given to us by God. And we have the opportunity to participate with his ongoing work in the world through giving. So if you're here and you're new, super thankful that you're here. You are always welcome to be here. So take a moment, think, pray, repent, for God and then come and receive the elements, this assurance of his grace for you. Jesus paid it all.